We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh, now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Greetings, podcast fans. Welcome back to Gator Nation Football Podcast, Episode 2. Here we are, back in the lab, James. It's so great to have you again in Week 2, especially coming off of that, I don't know, just what better way to describe it than incredibly exciting Week 1 Saturday night in the swamp. Loved it, loved it, loved it. So thanks to everybody for listening last week, or if you're first time tuning in, welcome to the podcast. It's going to be an exciting one. James, what do we got on stock here. We've got a great show on tap today, and the, the way it's going to work each week, if this is your first time tuning in, is it's pretty simple. Alan and I are going to break down very candidly what we think. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance, which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. Think about the performance that was the previous weekend, as well as our upcoming opponent. And we'll also have a guest from Gator Nation, as well as a guest from the opposing team. This week, we have Amy Campbell, who is of Scout.com and Internet fame. And then we also have... Jeff Charles from ECU. He's the voice of the Pirates joining us a little bit later in the broadcast. Looking forward to that. But before we get there, James, tell me just about your overall feelings about the game. You were there. What do you take away from it, just big picture? Well, starting starting with first impression, the stadium was rather full, mm-hmm. which, which was nice. It's been, it's been a while since that happened. That was nice. There was good energy in the stadium. Yeah, people were happy to be there. It was like, you know, I feel like the cloud of... Must championess, feel bad talking about it like that, <laughs> was lifted. 
people were happy to be there, and then the team played well. It was just a fun, good atmosphere there in the Swamp. It really was, and, and you definitely had, as the game progressed, you had this almost sense of collective relief. Yes. As it was like, hey, you know what? This feels different. This is not what we've seen for many years in a row now, and, and that was that was kind of neat to feel that corporately as a fan base. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think the thing people were most wanting to look at, stepping into the stadium, what is the offense going to be like? So what do we think about just the offensive style, the overall look and feel of that part of the team? Well, we talked last week about what it might be like and what it might look like mm-hmm. with a lot of the, the sort of one-play reads where you're going you're gonna to take the snap and then either Greer or Treon Harris is going to have one main guy to throw the ball to. It's very basic. It's very simple. It's very vertical. And we certainly saw that with both quarterbacks. And we also talked a lot about the tight ends. I know that I mentioned that I was really excited to see the tight ends and obviously they they exceeded expectations. Yes. 7 receptions on the day all over the field making tons of noise. It's something we haven't seen frankly out of the Gators in more than a decade because Urban didn't even really believe in the tight end even though he had a really good one. Yeah. Uh in Aaron Hernandez, he didn't really believe in utilizing it over the middle of the field like like McIlwain does. So yeah. it, it really, the offensive style, I thought, was a 10 out of 10. I mean, it was everything I wanted and more. It was great. Sure. I said to you in the stadium, I feel like every play that was called was done with intentionality. Like, after it happened, was like, what did we do that for? Every time we ran something, even if it didn't work, it was like, okay, I got exactly what we wanted to do there. That was a good decision. And as you remarked to me, we didn't have any idea what was going to happen. Which is the first time in, in a long time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at the end of Urban's tenure, I could I could sit in the stands, and, and like many Gator fans, you could predict virtually every play. We ran about 17 plays. They hadn't changed at all. In fact, the signals were exactly the same. We ran that famous shovel pass, and literally on the sidelines, they would make a shoveling signal. That That's actually what happened. And then mm-hmm. we went into the Muschamp era when we were running the ball most of the time, and we were doing everything in an obvious situation. So it was wonderful to sit in the stands and have absolutely no idea what play we were running or Run, where the ball pass, was going. Whatever. And it was clear that New Mexico State didn't have any idea what was happening either, which was fantastic as a Gator fan. Yeah, and I, I loved it, the unpredictability, just the, and overall the crispness of it. Getting like a good tempo, getting to the line, moving forward, no messing around. The plays got in on time, which wasn't always true of the previous regime. And... Like overall efficiency of the offense, and then you know what, just one penalty that happened three with three minutes left in the game. That was kind of mind blowing for Gator fans. It was amazing, and it couldn't have been really a much cleaner debut. And the team's demeanor too, which I picked up on, it was yeah. a very professional demeanor. It was even keel. There was energy, but it was a way different, way different team atmosphere from the Will Muschamp era, which is a lot of hype, play with a lot of passion. It's okay if you get penalties. This was a much more professional environment. You know what you're doing. McIlwain talks a lot about it's all about what you put on film. And you could see the players play that way. There was a commitment to excellence and a high attention to detail that he's bringing that was already evident in game one, which I thought was really fantastic. Uh, It really, again, A plus with regards to execution across the board. Fantastic job. Agreed. And you could tell that each player, you know, for the most part, knew what they were supposed to be doing. Well, whether they could execute that perfectly or not was a different story. But you're right. Attention to detail. That's been McIlwain's, I think, focus with this team is getting them ready to play. And it really showed uh, out there with them executing and then not doing dumb things. You know, you're always going to have penalties. Throughout the season. Someone's going to hold, you know, because they got beat on a pass rush or you know, a pass interference or something like that. But getting rid of those false starts 
and offsides and illegal formations and just the dumb stuff that would plague those must champ teams where it's like, okay, we're starting in first and 20 more often than we're starting in first and 10. It felt like half the time. Yeah. And it shows that McIlwain has a command of his players. He's able to teach, he's able to communicate. And that is a skill that all winning coaches have at this level. And you have to have it to win championships. And that's probably the most exciting part is yes, it's New Mexico state. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't, we can't sit here right now after week one and say, we're going to go undefeated. This is the best thing ever. But what we can say is the style, which we talked a lot about last week, I wanted to see the style. I wanted to see how it looked and how it felt. And that surpassed my expectations. And again, it doesn't correlate to success in the future, but it does tell us that he's a very good teacher and communicator and leader of a football team right out of the gate. That's a great point. And everything we're going to say today needs to be put into context of this happened against New Mexico State, which is a team maybe on the way up, but is certainly not in the caliber of LSU's and Georgia's and the people we're going to see later on in the schedule. But they had to pass this first test. If they didn't look great then it was going to be bad for the rest of the season. We needed them to play like they did to set themselves up for the rest of the season. Agreed. And and we talked a lot about the coaching change last episode. We talked a lot about Jim Harbaugh, and and Jim Harbaugh's team came Mm -hmm. out against a much better Utah team, but didn't answer those same questions. Yeah. I thought, you know, I wa- I watched that game and I found myself thinking that they uh they're still they're still a while away. Of course, yeah. different program than ours, but again, I I look at us now and I say I'm really excited for this ECU game because we're going to answer more questions. We're going to see more of what's going on and of course, we're going to get to get further down the pipeline with the quarterback situation, yes. which is the big storyline coming into this week, the thing that people were most excited to see or talk about or what happened and that was how is Will Greer going to perform? How is Treon Harris going to perform? That's the big question here, James. Give me your thoughts on both guys and how they did. Well, for me, it was the second quarter was the most excited and most exciting period of Gator football in a long time. I mean, obviously, during Urban's years, we had some incredible, incredible times in the swamp. But that was probably the best job of pure quarterbacking I've seen since Rex Grossman and I'm not talking about Treon Harris, I'm talking about Will Greer. Although both of them statistically did excellent, uh, the media seems to think that they're equal. For me, the competition wasn't even close. I thought that Will Greer did things that you just don't see redshirt freshmen do. He threw on time, he threw with conviction, he has a live arm, he threw on platform. Uh, he, he just consistently did things that you're not going to see a guy who hasn't played a collegiate game yet do. And I thought Treon, while he played well, he threw late. Uh, his ball's locked velocity. Uh, several times during the game, they had three levels. So you'd roll out and you'd have a short guy, a middle guy, and a deep guy. And he consistently, I thought, chose the wrong guy. And yeah. uh, although his numbers, again, looked good, he made safe throws, those throws are not available against higher-level teams. Whereas what Will Greer did was was an undressing of a defense. And again, it's something we haven't seen. It's not, it's not that Tim Tebow didn't do well. Of course, his numbers are some of the best in college football history. It wasn't the same kind of offense. I mean, what was happening there, what was on display, was really, really exciting for me. And obviously, I think people are probably wondering then, well, hey, why isn't Will Greer just the guy then, James? If, if it's so clear to you, then how come he's not named the starter today? Why is he listed on the depth chart with uh, Treon? Well, yeah, we'll get into some of that, I think, of moving forward here and what we think that McElwain is thinking. But I agree 100% with you. And I think that's the, the thoughts I get from talking to other Gator fans and people who are really analyzing the game. Is Treon looked, I would say, good, like competent, adequate. I would feel if Wilger doesn't exist, okay, we can win some games with Treon. But Greer exceeded my expectations for him. 
I loved his decisiveness. The ball came out on time to the right read. And when he got blitzed and things that happened, he calmly stood there and hit his hot route. You know, the guy that was supposed to be thrown to if the blitz happens. I mean, these were just darts, too. I loved it. It was so exciting to see him. And you're right, Treon, I mean, he made some completions. He didn't do anything dumb with the ball, which is a huge win. But he was missing his first obvious read and then having to put the ball in a spot where you know someone's covered and, oh, it's just kind of to fit it in there. And he made some plays, but I don't think those play, those places are going to be open against better defenses with more pass rush and better coverage, and that's going to get us into trouble. But with Greer, I mean... They didn't even get close to him on any of the plays except for you know his one maybe major mistake of the game where he fumbled. But and and even even that one, if you go back and look at the film, he stepped up into the pocket. He had he had pass protection with the running back on, so we actually had the exact right play call. Now mm-hmm. I don't know whether or not Will Greer as a redshirt freshman has the ability to move his running back to the different side for pass protection. He may. We don't know that. But regardless, uh, if Kelvin Taylor blocks the right side and and uh, Greer steps up. That's another touchdown play. Totally. And, and he stepped up. He climbed the pocket. Again, it's what we're talking about. These are high-level fundamentals that you're not going to see many college kids, regardless of their age, do. And he was doing almost all of them, which is really a testament to how well he's been coached. Uh, the ceiling for him is really high. I'm not saying he's going to come out and have a perfect game every game, but clearly to me, when you demonstrate that, and we talked about wanting to watch the quarterback style, wanting to see what they look like, he he vastly exceeded my expectations. I felt like he was the guy we had to have. He fits the system, but some of the throws he made were, were just simply incredible yeah. for, for anyone in college to make. Um, and one of my favorite throws, even though it was probably his worst throw, was the one over the middle. Phenomenal catch that was made late in the game. And, and the reason that throw was great is he checked left, he checked right, he re- established his feet before he threw that ball wound up being a little behind the receiver but again you just don't see that kind of footwork at this level and that's going to translate to winning football games down the road and lastly there was juice when he was in the game I mean I think the fans that are there felt it I think the players felt it. there was this noticeable electricity that something big was going to happen almost every single play yeah and and it was happening almost every single play I mean it was really something to watch really well and I agree. I mean, the the offense went to another level once he got in the game and started going. You know, it was kind of fun to see him throw that first pass. It wasn't so fun at the moment. You know, he gets in there, has the hips kind of right. His first pass in the swamp. I mean, I don't know how anyone wouldn't feel that way, you know, and kind of misfires. But from then on, he was essentially perfect. And I love the command that he seemed to have of the offense. He knew what was supposed to be happening on every play. And that was pretty remarkable for me. I, and we talked last week, like you know, to us to have a really great team, we need Will Greer to be the guy we think he could be. And he came out uh, on Saturday and showed that he could be that. Uh, he he was that. And that two minute drill we ran, we didn't even take a timeout. And and you have to put yourself in the mindset. Anyone who's played sports knows this. He throws a pass. Uh, on, I believe it was first down to Fullwood that should have been a touchdown yes. in the seam. I mean, literally, perfect, a throw. perfect pass. Uh, right in stride, on the money, perfect read, it's dropped. And then the next pass is a short dump off to Kelvin Taylor, and we're at third and long. And the game was 28-13 to 13 at that point in time. It was so it was a contest. There's pressure on him. Uh, he has a third and long situation, and you're probably still thinking in your mind, I can't believe Fulwood dropped that pass. 
But what does he do? He goes through a four-read progression on third down, dumps it off to Powell over the middle, who then makes a move and gets a first down. Incredible high level. High, high level of thought there. He's not forcing it. He's not throwing it deep. He's taking what the defense gives him. He right. gets rewarded, leads the team in for a score on, again, a drive that required no timeouts. I mean, it was a professional two-minute drive. And I don't care what defense it's against. It's hard to do it against air, let alone an actual team trying to stop you. It was really, really impressive. Yeah, and that... You know, it sounds like we're in very much in love with Will Greer, and I think that's true. I mean, he could come out next week and totally lay an egg, but I don't think that's going to happen. He seems like the guy we want moving forward. And, you know, I was also pleased with Treon's play. Like, it seems like he has made progress from last year. Like, in this system, they can do things to make him effective. And, like I said, I think we could win games with him, uh, but it was abundantly clear to, I think, both of us that Will Greer is going to be the guy. Uh, if if we're really going to get to the level that we want to be at. And that's and that's the proper summation is Treon I think is a is an excellent backup and a guy that could win games. Uh, there's no disrespect to Treon when you talk about how well Wilger did, but there's just there's just a different ceiling on those yeah. guys. There's just a very different ceiling. So let's talk a little bit uh, moving on from the quarterbacks which we'll revisit when we kind of answer the question of why then are they co on the depth chart? We we have some thoughts on that. We'll get to that. But before we do that, let's talk a little about some of the questions that were at least partially answered in the first game. One of the big ones we had was the offensive line. And what did you think about the offensive line in game one? I was pleasantly surprised, uh, I think, with their level of play. Now, again, contextualize against a probably very weak New Mexico State defense. But I needed the, them to come out there and not be a train wreck. They needed to play well to be functional, and they were that. And, you know, they kept the pressure off those guys for the most part. They opened up some okay running lanes. Now, they weren't coming out and road grading and being dominant. But for me, it was a relief that they were a functional unit because the potential was for them to come out and be just blasted and there'd be pressure in Treon and Greer's face all the time to no running lanes, and they passed their first test. You know what? So they... They didn't get A-pluses, but you know what? They didn't fail either. Right. I think that was right. Some areas of weakness that we both probably saw uh, in the run-blocking game where they weren't exactly creating significant holes in between mm-hmm. the tackles. Uh, but their pass protection, on the other hand, I thought was was really very solid. I yeah. mean, they, New Mexico blitzed a lot for our first game. They they really were, were sending several pressure packages. And the O-line handled that really well for the most part, which is great because we struggled with that two years ago. Last year, we got better. This year, again, a lot of patchwork uh, on the offensive line. I thought that was really well done. Uh, So, you know, questions to be answered in the future against bigger, stronger defensive lines. I'm with you. We can't say that the offensive line is going to be a strength right now, but we can say that, hey, it looks like if they can be average, especially with Will Greer and they're getting the ball out in less than a second and a half, we can probably do some things. Yeah, I just want to say about this group, too, is there's potential for improvement. There's uh, Martez Ivy potentially returning. This is a really young group that can get better. They haven't played together. So it's not like this is the finished product either. Which is which is what we need it to be because yeah. we need the offensive line. It's, it's, mm. it's obviously inadequate from an SEC standard. It is young. It can get better. And thankfully, we have a coach who runs a, a very quick trigger offense, which should help with that. Speaking of the quick trigger offense, what did you think about the receivers? We Who was going to catch the ball? We predicted 100 receptions in this year. And, and how do you think about that coming out of the game? Well, a lot of guys made plays, so that was good to see. It wasn't just Demarcus Robinson. We're going to throw to him every play. Brandon Powell made big plays, you know, both after the catch and down the field. Um, you know, Callaway 
Antonio Cowley, the freshman, made some plays. Uh, the tight end. So a bunch of different people caught passes and seemed like they're going to be big parts of the passing game. And, you know, one of our starters, you know, Fullwood, <laughs> dropped what would have been a walk-in touchdown. Uh, so we need him to step up and, and play. But I think the guys that they were looking to play well, Robinson, uh, Powell, Callaway, Wharton, those guys all looked good. And then the tight end group, like we talked about, played well. And, you know, one of the things I saw that I thought was really, really solid that I haven't seen in several years was what happened when the play broke down. The receivers are just very well coached this year. As soon as the play broke down, as soon as one of the quarterbacks was outside of the pocket, you had the guys that were short run deep. You had the guys that were deep come back to the quarterback. And Mm -hmm. we had several plays off of that. Kelvin Taylor had a huge play off of something similar to that where he was basically running a flat route, turned it upfield. He was found very quickly by Treon and turned it into a 50-yard gain. So I think that that's something that we're seeing this year that we did not see last year. We did not see any of the Will Muschamp years, and that is a really important thing to have. Uh, what do you think about the freshmen coming into this game? There was a lot of hype around a few of them. What what did you think? What did you see? Okay, I mentioned Callaway already. I mean, he looked like a you know, third-year player out there. Crisp routes, made some nice catches, seemed to know what he was doing. Really impressive. I don't think the two running backs, Scarlett and Cronkrite, by saying his name right, uh, you know, acquitted themselves nicely. They were out there. They were making plays. They're running hard. Scarlett looks like he could be a monster once he gets, you know, a feel for the college game. And, you know, they played really well. You know, we didn't see Ivy yet. We did see CC Jefferson in limited action. Uh, we're going to talk about the defensive line here in a minute. But uh, he flashed some really big potential. You know, didn't play a ton of snaps. But when he was out there... It was like, this guy could be a force. He's huge. He doesn't look like a true freshman. Uh, so I thought the freshman had quit himself nicely in that maybe tough environment where they had to step in front of a lot of people the first game, and they played really well. And speaking of the defensive line, did they, they do as well as maybe the O-line and the receivers, or was there a little more concern there? Well, I mean, this is a group with a much higher ceiling, and so you're expecting more out of them. And I, frankly, I thought they underperformed rather significantly. Uh and especially in the first half, they're getting pressure but not getting home. Now, I think this would be a moment to stop and give credit to New Mexico State's offense. I mean, especially their quarterback. We were super impressed with his ability to avoid the rush, stay calm, uh, move in the pocket, roll out, make plays. So against a, a lesser quarterback, I think we would have had a few more sacks. But still, too many misfits in the run game where they're, they had some seams they probably shouldn't have. There were some definitely kinks to work out. Your thoughts on the game? And, and I think that was probably one of the best things about it is what we saw is that we could really make adjustments. I mean, New Mexico State hit an incredible rhythm in the second quarter. Mm-hmm. And they do have a good offense. Jack Jack told us that last week. You know that Their running back was solid. Their receiver beat Vernon Hargraves multiple times. Uh, didn't wind up getting anything on him, but he did. And their quarterback had tremendous poise. Good footwork, eyes down the field, evaded a pass rush multiple times, and I think we played a little undisciplined, but we held them to negative one yard uh, in the second half, which is a fantastic adjustment to be made because they really were kind of, in a, in a weird way, having their way with us. They had almost 200 yards of offense in the first half, and, and so it was a concern. It was a worry. The run, the run defense, defensive tackle position underperformed. The defensive ends weren't getting a ton of pressure. It's something to look for this week. I expect them to attempt 
to make a lot more noise this week because I think they know that if we had to grade any position group, they probably would have been the weakest one coming into this next game. Yeah, they need to step up their game, and I think they will. I think we've gotten a little more creative in the second half, made some adjustments, which was good. So looking for big things out of this group this year, so hopefully they'll start to live up to that. And with that, now it's time for our Gator Nation guest segment. Each week, we will be interviewing someone from the Gator Nation. Could be a player, could be an announcer. But no matter who it is, they will be providing us with their candid insights and thoughts. This week, we're thrilled to have Amy Campbell of Scout.com on the show. Let's get to her comments. All right, we'd like to welcome to the show Amy Campbell. She is the host of Scout.com's Scout Now, covering college football, recruiting, and more. She's also a UF alum. And she has a little bit of internet fame, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. But welcome to the show, Amy. It's great to have you. Thank you. I'm very excited for this. Amy, I've been looking forward to talking to you for a while. So you have a unique position here where you get to talk to people all around the country in your job. And you know the Gators are flying a little bit under the radar right now. But what do you, what do you get a sense from people as you talk to them? What's their thoughts on the Gators? What are they thinking about them? Well, I think there's a lot of optimism and excitement right now with the new coaching staff. As as always with a new coaching staff, everyone is just more excited because there's the, the unknown and the hope that things are going to be better than they, they were. And I think especially after this first game, people saw so much of what they wanted to see and what they hadn't really been seeing in the past few seasons. So I think there's a lot of excitement around what's going on. Of course, I think people are kind of aware they have to be patient that there's, you know, lack of depth in some positions and a lot of young guys, but I think that the beginnings of something good are happening in Gainesville. And what are the thoughts, Amy, we know you're in New York City. What are the thoughts about just other fans that don't really know Gator football or are fans of other schools? What's the thought about Florida there with, with what they're thinking? Well, around New York City itself, nobody really follows much college football, to be honest. But around my office, of course, we are following it like crazy all the time. We talk about it all day long. Um, I don't think right now that there is a lot of uh, respect for Florida, um, especially within the SEC, especially the SEC East doesn't have a lot of respect right now. Um, Beginning of the season, everybody's talking about the West and just how stacked it is and I think people are expecting a down year for Florida this year, but I think that they are going to be better than people are expecting. But I'm mostly looking to see, I guess, be patient for next year, I think is what I'm looking to really see when when I'll really be able to decide how I feel about uh, the staff and how they're doing. But so far, so good. Now, we know that your your specialty is recruiting. We know you covered the state of Florida for several years before you moved to us a little bit about the recruiting then and the recruiting now and specifically on offense yeah I think that's to me the biggest difference and I'm sure you saw the on-field product even just in the first game but the biggest difference between um, Muschamp being a defensive guy and McElwain being more of an offensive guy but just covering recruiting in Florida especially it was kind of baffling to me how there wasn't a lot of emphasis on recruiting the, in my opinion, who are the right guys on offense. And, I mean, what do I know? I, I know. But, you know, watching a lot of high school football and guys that are electric, um, playmaking type of weapons for on offense with the it factor, whatever it is, and Florida would be going after other people that I didn't necessarily understand. And then I think we also saw a lot of guys that came in with a lot of hype that 
also didn't produce on the field. Um, so I think when it came to the offense, they were going after people that maybe I you know, would have had a different opinion on, but there just wasn't as much of an emphasis on it, especially in South Florida. I mean, it, when they got Treon Harris out of South Florida, that was huge because they hadn't gotten anybody out of Miami in several years. And so getting back into Miami, Broward even, has been great. And you're already seeing, like, Brandon Powell's a Broward guy having a, a great career so far at Florida. Um, people are really excited about the Jordans at running back, Scarlett and Cronkite, both South Florida guys who are going to be fantastic at Florida, already making an impact young. Um, they're doing so well in South Florida and on offense. And just even with that shift of McElwain being more of an offensive guy and uh, with the offensive product they've been seeing, they're going to continue to do well. Antonio Callaway as well, a guy from Booker T. Washington, Miami, um, already having a great freshman year, and we've heard a lot of good things about him in camp too. So I think that's, those guys are going to be something to look forward to. Given the state of the offensive recruiting for the University of Florida now, does it take years, days, months to turn it around and become the school in the Southeast that's recruiting the best talent? It's interesting. I always think about recruiting, you know, when you see a, a signing class and, you know, you'll see all the rankings on signing day and everybody likes to uh, have a highly ranked signing class. Um, and, and this is something a lot of coaches will say on signing day, too, and I totally agree, is we'll know in three years how good this class really is. And that's absolutely true. And kind of another cliche that you hear is, you know, the closer – the closer you are to the football, the more development it takes. So right now you're seeing, you know, a lot of young guys at receiver and running back, whatever, making um, a name for themselves at a young age. And those guys can get on the field right away, and they're going to be really good for a few years at Florida. Um, guys who made big plays in the game on Saturday um, that I've already mentioned, um, lots to look forward to there. I think, you know, where the biggest struggle is is on the offensive line, and there's been a, a – in my opinion, a number of factors that have contributed to the lack of depth. One, like just not great recruiting, but there have been several guys who have had career-ending freak injuries as well that have left football altogether. And then there's been guys who are currently injured. So they've really had to get creative there. And I think what's good about that is a lot of young guys are getting experience, so they'll have several years to improve on that. But what's What's tough right now is that, you know, there, there's going to be some growing pain. So I think that's where you're going to see the longest time of turnaround. But they did okay on Saturday. I mean, granted, let's keep in mind who the opponent is. We were not in SEC play at all, but they only allowed one sack. And what was so exciting to me to see in Florida was zero uh, false start penalties on the offensive line, which is something <laughs> we haven't seen in a while. <laughs> For sure. All right, Amy, I'm going to put you on the spot here. I'm going to ask you three questions. Okay. Give me like your one sentence response to these. Okay, first up, who's going to win the starting QB battle, Treon or Will Greer? I only get one sentence on this. <laughs> um, this is hard for me because I love both guys and I think they're both really good. But I think if we're looking long term in the future, I have to say Will Greer. But I love them both and they're different, and I have to say Will Greer, though. All right. What's Florida's <laughs> most difficult game on their schedule? Oh, man. Um, a lot of them are scary to me, to be honest. Um, you know, I'm wondering the most – okay, the most difficult, I'm not going to – at Kentucky, I think it's going to be interesting, but that's not going to be the most difficult. Um, 
I think at LSU is going to be the hardest. Um, going to Baton Rouge, a tough place to play. LSU is always really good, a great rivalry. Um, also, we have no idea how good LSU is right now because they didn't even play this past weekend. Um, I think that's going to be the toughest one to go to Baton Rouge and play. But I'm intrigued by the Kentucky one because they are they're on the come up right now. So I think that one's going to be a little bit scary too. Indeed, I agree. Okay, and lastly, at the end of the year, who's the impact player for the Gators? Hmm. I mean, I could say like an easy answer, like Vernon Hargraves, because he's the best player on the team. Obviously, he'll he'll be great. Um, but I I'm most excited about Jordan Scarlett. Um, I think getting a guy like him is huge. A guy that Florida hasn't had in a while, a seriously true SEC running back that is really talented and he's going to be really good. Um, that's that's my guy. And, you know, people have been talking about him, so I wouldn't call him a sleeper pick, but he's definitely the guy to watch for me. That's a great pick, Amy. That's the same pick I had for my breakout player of the year. And I'm surprised that you think Kentucky is going to be difficult. Did you watch the game on the weekend? They really struggled in their opener. Every A lot of people struggle in their openers, though. I feel like, and not everybody, but you you can only take so much from it. Like you can, you really have to keep it in perspective on those, on that first weekend. Like it's almost by the end of the season, we're going to be looking back and saying like, wow, I can't believe what we saw that first weekend. I, I just, I kind of always take it with a grain of salt. They've got a few weeks to get it together. And I, I think, I think it'll just be more interesting than people maybe are expecting. Well, they're certainly excited up there. And speaking of exciting, there is a YouTube video that has, I don't know, <laughs> one and a half million views on it. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, you can check it out. All you actually have to do is, is just Google Amy Campbell on YouTube, and it's like the first <laughs> video hit on there. But what happens in that video, Amy, is that you are on the sideline. You are interviewing someone, and there's a play in the end zone. And then what, what happens? Why don't you finish that story for us? What, what happens at the end? I'll, I'll take you through it. Um, I know better than to ever have my back to the field, but I was – Maybe you. I don't know if you can really tell this in the video. That was about 20 yards out the back corner of the end zone, like not very close. But I kind of felt that the play was coming my way, and I didn't want to stop the take because I have stopped many a take thinking that I might get run over. And I was like, no, no, Amy, this is way far away from you. But Ermin Lane, who is now at Florida State receiver, wrestled over the ball with Tony Brown, who's now at Alabama. They kind of fight over it. They get flung out of the back of the end zone, and I just Ermin just like absolutely flattened me, and it made for great video. It was glorious. One of my one of my favorite, one of my most glorious moments, I must say. <laughs> Oh, that is that is a great video. If you haven't seen it, you should definitely spend a few moments checking it out. It's only about twenty seconds long. And Amy, so everyone knows, you popped right back up from that hit. Is that is that how it happened? You just kind of hopped up and slapped the guy on the head and said, "Hey, oh, yeah, yeah. nice hit." If you listen closely, you'll hear my laughter at the very end. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, knowing you are right makes the video even more fun. If you if you had gotten flattened and been hurt, I don't oh, think yeah. I could watch it, but. Oh, yeah. If it was a serious injury, it would not have had the same type of, like, hilariousness at all. And it looked serious. But, no, I just – I think maybe just because I'm so tiny, I just kind of went, like, like through the air, and then you can hear me laughing at the end. <laughs> I love it. All right, Amy, I got one last question for you here. What yeah. is your favorite Gainesville restaurant? Oh, great question. My number one pick is Civilization. Not a lot of people know about it. 
Ooh, actually uh, kind of hard to find. I've driven past it a hundred times. You're gonna have to look it up on Google or something. But uh, really good food. Um, you know, I'm all about the local local businesses. Really creative stuff. Seasonal dishes. Um, really good stuff. Civilization. And if I know they change the menu very frequently at Civilization, but if someone's going there to get a dish, what is the favorite one that you've had? Oh, man. Well, if they still have it, it's been a few years since I've been there, but my favorite thing was like a, I can't remember what it was called, but it was like a, a brothy Asian kind of rice bowl thing with like mushrooms and broccolini in it. It was really good. And with that, that concludes, Amy, our time today. Thanks so much for being on the show. Amy Campbell, <laughs> the host of Scout.com, Scout Now covering college football recruiting and more. You can view her on the web virtually every day, giving wonderful updates across the spectrum of news in the football world. Thanks again, Amy Allen, and I enjoyed having you. Look forward to seeing you here in Gainesville in the near future. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that was really good to hear from Amy. Great insights about recruiting, about the team. Always really fun to talk to her. So let's go ahead and pivot here and look to next week and talk about East Carolina University James, what do you want to see from the offense and defense in week two here? What are you expecting out of them? I think we need to see a step forward, maybe not in point total because we're playing against a better football team, but in consistency, I think. What the step forward would be doing it again, really. Yeah. So we're playing against a better opponent. Are we still able to match that same level of attention to detail that we saw in game one, lack of penalties, moving the football through running and passing? and really being able to kind of maintain what we had and build upon that. I'd like to see both quarterbacks uh, do well again. I, I, I don't think that, honestly, Will Greer could, could go forward from where he was. I mean, he, it was such a great game that he put on film. Treon Harris, I think there's several things I'd like to see him do better. But overall, on the offense and the defense, if I could put it in a little nutshell, I'd like to see the defense have a lot more pressure on the ball, and I really want to watch that defensive tackle spot because we struggled in the interior run game. We got shoved aside multiple times. That's probably something I'm going to be keying on in addition to the play of the quarterbacks. And then we'll talk a little bit about what, if any, role Demarcus Robinson will have given his recent demotion to the third team. But what are what are your thoughts for this week? Yeah, what I'm looking for out of the offense is to see them progress in terms of, uh, I think, some more explosive plays. I don't know if we were intentionally a little vanilla. I mean, we were super effective, but we didn't take a ton of deep shots down the field. Or nothing fancy, really. So just that they're going to continue to open up the playbook. We'll see more things. And I want to I want to see Wilger and Treon exit the game with clean jerseys. You know, the, the offensive line keeps them upright, out of pressure. And on defense, I would love to see more aggressions there, too. So maybe a few more interceptions, a little more pressure on the quarterback. I agree with you about they have to be a little more stout against the run moving forward. And we've got a continuing... QB situation here. Uh, the depth chart released today listed as Treon Harris or Will Greer. That means both of them, they're like co-starters or whatever. Um, so why do you think we're going to continue to see them both play this week? What is McIlwain thinking here? Well, my theory on this is that McIlwain thinks Greer's the guy. And I think what he's doing, and we, we alluded to this in week one, is that there's, there's a play here to one win over the locker room, which I think he's probably already done and accomplished in week one. And two, which is maybe a little more subtle play, is to is to keep Treon and or Will, assuming I'm wrong about Will being the guy, but keep one of those guys as a backup. 
Yeah, we're, in a, we're in a really thin state at quarterback. If Treon transfers and Will's the guy, then our, our backup guy is a senior you know, graduate transfer from Vanderbilt who doesn't play quarterback, really. So where does that leave us? So my thought on this is that Mac Mac is a quarterback guy. He, he wants a guy who can get rid of the ball, make decisions, have a strong arm. Those are all the things Wilger has and displayed. Now, we're not in practice. We can't know exactly what goes on week to week with regards to leadership and other things. But all in all, I, th- I think what, what you're going to see is you're going to see another shot this week against ECU for both guys to put more stuff on film. It's a chance for the coach to talk to the players during the game to see what they react like, to put them in different pressure situations. And really, I think to make it clear that both guys got a fair shot, which is something I don't think we saw under the last quarterback competition we had when it was Driscoll versus Brissett, where Brissett kind of played like nine plays and just got the whole game. So the good news is there's a lot of fairness. The interesting thing is I do really think that Greer has already done enough just to be the guy. I think you could name him the guy. But I think there's a locker room play. I think there's a long-term play. I think McElwain is very, very strategic. And if I were betting, he's giddy about the performance of both quarterbacks, but really excited about the ceiling his team could have with Will Greer. You can build a program around this guy. And Tran will be a wonderful backup that could win games. So I expect there to be a starter named after the ECU game unless Will Greer really does something way different this week, which would be surprising to me given his fundamentals, given what he exhibited. I think he'll be the guy, but uh, you know, we're going to find out. I just, I just don't think Treon necessarily fits as well like we talked about last week in the offense. He can do it. He can run it, uh, but there has to be a reason why he's doing the co-starters. Therefore, it leads me to believe it's a team-building strategy and not just a, a week-by-week win-the-game strategy. Certainly. I, I agree with everything you said there, and there is something to be said for having your backup ready, especially if you've committed to playing both guys at this point, there's no harm in giving Treon some reps. Because let's say Wilger wins the job doesn't mean third quarter Kentucky, he gets blindsided and breaks his collarbone, that that's not going to happen either. So there's something to be said for having a guy out there with some game experience in your offense, getting a lot of reps. Absolutely. And it doesn't mean that we're going to turn the pages of the, of the paper and the media and hear McElwain say this week that one of these guys is the guy. Again, you can't really do that in, in, in the modern day football era you have to be careful with what you're doing and who you anoint because people are so quick to transfer and like you said to have a complete team you need to have good players every position along with backups I think he's addressing those needs and I think he's doing it well and I think interestingly enough the media seems to really believe this is an equal competition so either we're really wrong yeah or or the media just looks at the stats and says hey look I looked at their line they're both similar they both had a similar QB rating but it's so different when you watch how it was accomplished and that's what a coach is looking for is how did you get at your result and to me it's very clear that we'll get a better game in that regard and we're going to find out a lot more about that and against ECU is obviously a much, much better opponent than New Mexico State. Right. Well, a ton more information to go on next week. So we're also getting back three suspended players, uh, two starters uh, in Alex McAllister and, and uh, Marcus May. Uh, you know, I would hope that that's going to provide a little bit more umph in the defense. McAllister's a guy we've got starting in that rush spot or you know tab to play the most there. And he's maybe our best pure pass rusher. So I think that could help us a lot. Marcus May, a little more stability on the back end. Anything you're looking for from their return? I'd like to see the safety play. It wasn't necessarily tested against New Mexico State. And we said in episode one that the safeties are, are a concern for me. They didn't really do anything in the first game. They didn't make any plays. So I'll be watching Marcus May. He's a guy who's blown several coverages before. He has a lot of talent. Uh, I know the coaches believe in him, so I want to see what's going to happen. ECU, of course, and we'll talk about this more, especially with Jeff Charles. 
they're coming in wounded, not quite the same team they would have been. So they can't apply the same pressure that would have been there. But I'll definitely be looking to see where they line up, how well they do when the ball's in the air, and if they're making the right reads. That'll be something to pay attention to on Saturday. Yeah, and we've got an interesting thing going on with the Gator schedule here because it's a nice little stepping stone on up. You know, New Mexico State, bottom of the tier in terms of Division One teams. ECU, step up, got to go at Kentucky, home against Tennessee, Ole Miss. It just keeps ramping up. So the team, it's nice. They can keep passing these tests, keep moving forward, almost like leveling up in a video game here. The next level's a little tougher. And so ECU... Going to be a little bit tougher opponent. Uh, what are you looking for? Like, what are the keys to the game here? If the Gators are going to perform well and win, what needs to happen? What needs to happen is we need to see a game against a TCU. I mean, an ECU team that is limited. That's going to be low turnover. We need to see a, an effective running game, an effective passing game. So I, I think again against ECU, it's very realistic to think that we're going to have above. I'd like to see us have above 450 yards of offense, which is a lot against a team that's had the success ECU has. They lost a lot of starters. They're definitely down. They played a tight game against a Towson team that is historically inferior. So we need to see a high level of production out of the offense, probably more so than I would have said if this is a different ECU team. And and we need to see a defense against a, a new quarterback at ECU, a guy that hasn't had a lot of experience, even though he's an older guy, that really puts the clamps on him. And I'd like to see, again, less than 250 yards of offense uh, in the swamp and in a game really what we'll be paying attention to is the attention to detail can we duplicate another game where we have less than a handful of penalties and if we can then you start to say to yourself one is meaningless two is building a trend and if you can put three games like that in the bucket then you start to believe so there's a lot of good things to watch this week against ECU certainly they are a quality football team they could give us problems um, but we should we should, if we play like we did last week with a progression like you talked about in the Stepping Stone, be able to do what needs to be done by, again, limiting turnovers, generating significant yards, limiting them to other yards. And I will especially be watching for both Will Greer and Treon Harris's play. I'm looking for Treon to deliver the ball quicker. I'm looking for him to make better reads, and I'm looking for more velocity on his passes, more confidence behind what he's doing. Also, pay attention to his footwork. Is he pointing towards the guy who's throwing the ball, or is he kind of shuffling his feet when he throws? For Will, I'm looking for the same things. If Will does the same thing he did last week, that, that'll be incredible for all of us that are watching. We'll have a, a strong QB for the future. What about you? What are you looking for? I'm looking for uh, the offense to really be consistent. And when I say that, I mean, like, this is a, a floor team that is much more talented on paper than this ECU team. So they, they need to put some points on the board. They need to show that they can do that. And then the defense, like, we're I think from them, we're going to need sacks, turnovers, you know. So the secondary is so talented, there need to be some interceptions out there. Like, and so if we're putting pressure on this quarterback who doesn't have a ton of experience, I think that's going to lead us to be in good field position, points on the board, uh, again, like, you know, having another game where they come out and play well, build some confidence. Uh, all right, so a few thoughts there. Give me a score. What do you think is going to happen here in the game? Well, I know that this past week, you and I both had a score that was right right on the money. We didn't do it on the podcast. Both of us had low 50s to, to low teens, and that's that was pretty close, which is great. This is an ECU team that's been to a bowl game eight of the last nine years. Quality they, program. They're a quality program. Yeah, absolutely. This is not a team that you need to take lightly. We played them in the bowl game last year. Of course, they did have a lot of turnover, but this is a good football team. They're just not 
as talented as we are and that we're catching them in a weaker year. So with those things being said, I really think that they probably shouldn't score more than 13 and we probably should score 40. So I'm going to, I'm going to say 40 to 13 would be a score that I want against this opponent. That would be a solid win and a step in the right direction. Of course we could win by less than that and I'd be fine too. Like I said last week, I'm looking to see how it's done, not necessarily the points on the board. So that's what I'm looking for. What about you? Yeah, that would be a bold win to put that many points up on the board and hold this ECU team, which can be put on offense. Ruffin McNeil is a, a sound offensive mind, usually has his team putting up points. I'm going to say looking somewhere closer to like 35-17, uh, I would say maybe 32-21, something that's going to be a little closer, I think, unless the defense just really shows up and puts the clamps on them. And I would love to see something in, in your range. I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility. I think this game could be a little tighter than we would like it to be, just because the youth and experience and experience that we have. Um, so there we go. ECU's coming up next. I'm certainly excited to see what's going to happen there. And let's go ahead and talk to our guest. Who's, who do we got, James? Well, Jeff Charles, the voice of the Pirates, was two-time North Carolina Broadcaster of the Year, and he's been the voice of the ECU Pirates for nearly 30 years. Really excited to have you, Jeff. Thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you, guys. Uh, we're excited to come to Gainesville and match up with the Florida Gators again on Saturday. You know, it was a really great game in the Birmingham Bowl last year. It really came down to the last minute of the game, and the Gators won, of course, 28-20 to over East Carolina. But Pirates are um, looking forward to coming back down. There's been a long time since East Carolina has been to Gainesville. You have to go back to the 1983 season. Uh, Pirates had a near miss down there in 1983. That was the year, guys, East Carolina had a terrific team. They went 8-3 and three that year, and their three losses were to the three Florida schools. They lost to Florida, Florida State, and Miami. But they uh, have not been back to Florida since. Now, they've played at Florida State since that game in 83. Had a number of games against Miami. Miami at one point was uh, a regular on the schedule for East Carolina, but it would be nice to get back to uh, to Gainesville and, and play the Gators again. Yeah, we're going to be glad to have you guys here. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the state of East Carolina right now, the state of the program? How are you guys feeling about things? Well, the program is very solid. Ruffin McNeil's in his sixth year. He has developed continuity in his coaching staff, and he is beloved here because he played here. He's an alum of East Carolina, and he was a very fine defensive back here. And then, like – a lot of coaches uh, these days, he went uh, from here to there and everywhere in between, always in the back of his mind. He wanted to come back to East Carolina as the head coach, and it's really a dream come true for him. And he's had a really good run. The Pirates have won 26 games in the last three years going into this season. So I'm not a mathematician, but that tells me they're averaging right at nine wins a year, which mm -hmm. is pretty darn good. So they've, they've had a good run. Uh, the program is very solid. It's as solid now as – Anytime I've seen it in the 28 years I've been at East Carolina, uh, recruiting has been good. Coaching staff is stable. East Carolina has a very, very good fan base, not the numbers that Florida has. But, guys, uh, you know, as far as the atmosphere is concerned, when, when East Carolina Stadium is full at 50,000, and even when it's not quite 50,000, it's uh, really a great atmosphere. It's an SEC-type atmosphere. And East Carolina is a football school first. And they've carved out that niche in the state of North Carolina as the, quote, football school in the state. And so it's a, a rapid fan base that's growing, a stadium that now seats 50,000, and a, a program that competes very well in the American Athletic Conference, East Carolina's conference. 
and that's the goal really this year and probably moving forward will be the goal every year is to win the AAC and hopefully someday get into uh, one of the major bowls. So uh, program solid. Program is very solid these days. So as you think about this season, what's the outlook for the team? What are they expecting out of it? A little bit of a transition for them, I know. Well, it is because you lost a lot of good football players off that team of last year, and most notably Shane Carden and Justin Hardy. They were just terrific. Shane Carden was the quarterback, and Justin Hardy, the all-time leading receiver in the history of NCAA football and receptions, and that certainly says a mouthful, and Carden was a terrific quarterback. And so he's gone. He was a three-year starter, and you don't want to start the season with your third-string quarterback the first game. But that's what happened to East Carolina because they're starting – quarterback a couple of weeks ago who was named as a starter kurt bankert and he's a young man from florida from cape coral had a terrific high school career he was being groomed as shane carden's replacement and he blew his knee out he had an acl tear in his right Mm. knee about two weeks ago and so he is done for the season and i was really excited about kurt he is uh really a talented kid he was recruited by florida by the way he's 6'3 220 pounds has a terrific arm He's really a strong, tough kid. He already has set all the records in the weight room as far as quarterbacks are concerned and all the ways they test the guys these days. And he's pretty mobile. Even though he's a big kid, he runs well. And so we were really excited about him. Plus, he's a terrific kid. He's been he's been on the dean's list like every semester he's been here. He's smart. He knows the offense. He's a great kid, good leader. So once he went down, uh, it was back to plan B. And then Cody Keith, who was his backup, then he messed up his ankle in practice, and he's not been able to play. He's been in a boot. Now he's back practicing this week. So then now you're down to the third-string quarterback, and Blake Kemp played in the win over Towson on Saturday. And this is a kid that I don't know if they really expected him to play much at all this year, but now all of a sudden here he is, the first-string quarterback. So that's the situation they're in. They were down three receivers going into that game and three good ones, one kid uh, on probation, Trayvon Brown. Uh, the other two are out with injuries, so they're they're down there in the receiving core as far as their depth factor is concerned. They've lost some good players there. And so it's a rebuilding year somewhat on the offense. The defense is expected to be strong, but they lost some good players on defense from last year as well. But they have two terrific linebackers in Zeke Bicker and Montez Overton. That's the strength of the uh, defense for East Carolina. Both of those guys will have a chance to play in the NFL, and they're really good players. And the Pirates are, are counting on those two guys defensively. Game plan-wise, Jeff, what do we expect to see in Gainesville this Saturday on the offense given the changes? Do we expect to see a similar style, or is it going to be different given what's gone on? Well, I think you always have to look at your players and what their skill set is and design a plan for what they can do and how they can execute. And Blake Kemp in this first game, East Carolina was very conservative and his numbers look good, and, and he was good. He was accurate. He was 29 of 37 in the game for 230 yards, but he didn't throw the ball downfield much. And the Pirates run this spread that Florida fans may remember from, from last year in the Birmingham Bowl. But uh, he was dumping the ball off to his backs. They were running short routes, and so they really didn't throw deep. They really didn't even throw many intermediate routes in the game uh, on Saturday. So the word last week, guys, going into the game with Towson, the word was manage. Uh, Blake Kemp needs to manage the game. And he did a terrific job of doing that because the offense never turned it over. And when you throw a kid in there fresh that's really never played, sometimes you'll see a bunch of mistakes and turnovers. But to his credit, there were not any turnovers on offense, one of the big reasons the Pirates won the game. So 
I would expect them to play uh, similarly. Now, the, the run game was really good. Chris Harrison is a fine back. Chris Harrison was going to Wisconsin out of high school. We all know uh, the program Wisconsin's had, but he was an in-state kid, and he wanted to stay in-state, so he ended up at East Carolina. He's had an opportunity now to start after being a backup for, for all of his years. He's a fifth-year senior. He ran for 154 yards in the game on on Saturday, so – they need him to come out, and they need him to have a good game in the offensive line, which is a veteran offensive line. East Carolina plays, uh, feels really good about the offensive line. They missed uh, one kid in the game on, on Saturday that they were counting on. But other than that, uh, the offensive line is pretty much back intact from the one that uh, played last year. So they feel good up front. They feel like they're going to be able to run the ball this year. Whether they can run it against Florida, I don't know. We'll find out. But uh, with an ex- inexperienced quarterback, the run game, I think, becomes even more important. So the Pirates are going to have to uh, run the football, I think, more this year than what they've run it in the past. And if if they were going to win this game this Saturday, what would what would be a couple of things that we would need to see both defensively and offensively? You know, hold the Gators to less than X amount of points, gain X amount of yards. Like, what would you say ECU's main priorities or keys to winning this game and their game plan will be? Well, number one, you can't turn it over, and that's the case every time an underdog plays a, a favored team. You just can't turn it over because once you start throwing picks or you fumble it two or three times or you give up big plays in special teams, it's usually lights out. So I think they'll come out and, and, again, try and run the football, not turn it over. They absolutely can't turn it over. And then on the defensive side of the ball, they've got to eliminate big plays. Uh, Florida's got terrific skilled athletes and guys who can get behind you in the secondary and next thing you know there's a 70 yard bomb and uh you know the game breaks open on a home run play like that and also with the running backs that florida has you got to be able to keep them in check and not not allow them to to take off and make a 60 70 yard run for a touchdown so uh, for defense the defense uh, keep everything in front of you uh, don't let uh, florida's outstanding skill and their speed get behind you on defense and eliminate big plays and then offensively i think they're going to have to be able to run the football they can't turn it over special teams guys always a a big part of every football game you can't have a punt block you can't have a a field goal block Uh, you can't give up a a touchdown on a punt return or a touchdown on a kickoff return so the pirates are going to have to play very well in special teams too thanks jeff i appreciate that a little bit of analysis there uh so you guys are replacing Shane Card and Justin Hardy. Can you give us maybe one or two guys on offense and defense that Florida fans should keep an eye on, maybe their names and numbers as they're watching the game this weekend? Sure. Number 22, Chris Harrison had the terrific game on Saturday, ran for 154 yards. He's going to get the rock. There's no question about that. Anthony Scott is his backup, and he's a good back too. He's number three. And uh, Anthony actually is a little faster than Chris. He doesn't have his experience. But uh, he, he's a guy that can get around the corner and make some things happen. So look for those two guys on offense running the football. And then throwing the ball, uh, Blake Kemp, of course, the quarterback, needs to find Isaiah Jones, number seven. Isaiah Jones is the son of an all-time East Carolina great, and ECU Hall of Famer Robert Jones was an All-America here, went on and played on two Super Bowl champion Dallas Cowboys teams as a linebacker, had a terrific career in the National Football League. This is his son. Isaiah Jones, who uh, is really the featured target on offense. But and East Carolina has a, a big kid that basically is a tight end. They really don't call him a tight end in this offense, but his name is Bryce Williams. He's 6'6", 258 pounds. He wears number 80. He's a big-time target. He has good hands, and 
once he catches the ball, he kind of thunders down the field, and he's, he's tough to get on the ground, so they'll try and find him as well. And then another kid, 85, uh, Davon Grayson, is a, a really good receiver that they will try and, and utilize as well. But East Carolina is very, you know, they, they, they run a lot of kids in and out. Um, they're, they're three deep when everybody's healthy and on the field. They're, they're a legit two and maybe even three deep in some positions. So you'll see an awful lot of, uh, of players running in and out at, at the receiver spots in particular. And then up front, the best offensive lineman is a kid named J.T. Boyd. Uh, he started out as a center. They moved him to right guard this year, and he's um, he's a first-team AAC guy, and so is the left tackle, uh, Ike Harris, who's a big kid. He's 6'7", 310 pounds. He plays left tackle. He's a first-team all-AAC uh, performer as well. And then, as I mentioned, the guys on defense, uh, they fly around all over. Number 51, Montese Overton. Montese is uh, a terrific athlete. Uh, he's going to play in the National Football League, and then the kid next to him, Zeke Bigger, number 44, uh, is a terrific tackler, and, and he's all over the field as well. Josh Hawkins is the best guy in the secondary. He'll wear number 28. He's uh, he's a corner. And then, guys, a heartwarming story up front on the defense. Number 66, Terrell Stanley, is a fine player. Terrell has had been out for a year and a half until this game on Saturday. He was involved in uh, just a horrific automobile accident. He's lucky to be alive. They didn't think he was going to make it and here he is a year and a half later he's back on the football field and, and he's starting and he's doing a good job when when he went down he was arguably uh, the best defensive lineman the pirates had and really quite frankly didn't think he'd ever play football again and now here he is back starting and he does uh, he does a really good uh, job up front and jonathan white on the other side had a big game against Towson. so those are the guys you need to look for on saturday that's a really good story. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, so when I say to you Gator football, like what do you think? What comes to mind? Well, I think about Urban Meyer, and I think about the national championships, and I think about how good uh, Florida was in those days. Uh, I think about a big-time program in the Southeastern Conference with a terrific fan base that puts eighty-eight to 90,000 people in the stadium. And then I think of a program that that over the years has had great heights, like winning national championships, and then uh, then then down uh, a little bit too uh, in the SEC, and maybe dropping off the map as far as the the national picture is concerned. So I see, you know, again, kind of a yo-yo effect uh, with the program down through the years. I think of great athletes because the University of Florida is going to recruit the state of Florida and have most of their players from there, and we all know how great uh, high school football is there, and and how many terrific high school football players there are. So, you know, the coaching staff, uh, no matter who it is, going to recruit hard there and have a lot of very talented Florida kids, a lot of great speed, a lot of great skilled players uh, at Florida each and every year. And I think about some of the great quarterbacks who have come through there as well. And I think about a program that, my goodness, you have everything to be successful and to be a, a national contender each and every year, even though it's college football. So things go up and down and things happen. And sometimes uh, you get the right coach and sometimes you don't. And now, of course, uh, a new coach. And so he's looking to rebuild the program a bit. I think Florida has a chance to to be really, really good and be a national contender again because all the tools are there. So considering the bowl game last year, a really close contest, is there any sense of kind of some payback amongst the program or is that something that hasn't really come up? Uh, Coach McNeil was asked that in his press conference today, and I don't think it'll really come up too much. Uh, these two teams, even though 
on the uniform of one, it'll say East Carolina. The uniform of the other will say Florida. And there will be a lot of kids on the field Saturday who played in that game. But as uh, Coach McNeil said today, their focus is, is on themselves. East Carolina has a lot of work to do uh, after the game on Saturday. Uh, Towson's good, but they are an FCS program, and it was an eight-point game, and, and the Pirates have a lot of correcting to do uh, from that game. So I, I think the focus this week is, hey, we've got to get better, and it's the old coach's cliche that you guys have heard a million times. You make the most improvement from game one until game two. And they really feel like they're going to be able to do that. But I, I just feel the focus is on East Carolina this week and, and with the guys practicing hard, having great practices and watching a lot of tape and trying to correct the things that, that they did not do very well this past week. So I really haven't heard a whole lot about uh, let's get Florida in the rematch. Really haven't heard that talk very much. And we know that there's a few traditions there at ECU, uh, one of which is, is shooting off the cannons. Could you tell us a little bit more about that tradition and, and some of the things that go on in an ECU home game that kind of surround that, what the fans do? And do they do it on the road, uh, for an example? No, they don't do the cannon on the road. They do it at home games. And, and there is a, a definite tradition here with this program and really in the entire eastern half of north carolina guys i've lived a lot of different places i've lived in seven states and i've really never seen a culture kind of like eastern north carolina has and unless you live in greenville or in the eastern half of the state uh, you don't really understand it but it's a place that kind of has its own music it has its own food it has its own people and and the attitudes that they have as you may know i-95 goes right up through uh, north carolina and it's kind of the eastern half of the state and then the middle part of the state and the western part of the state. Well, East Carolina is on that eastern part of the state, and it, it really has its own distinct culture. So you go back, if you really go back, uh, Pirates hundreds of years ago were uh, near near the Greenville area in uh, the different um, areas of the, of the ocean. We're not that far from the Atlantic Ocean, and, and then all the rest of the uh, rivers and all the rest of the waterways that shoot off from up the ocean come actually into the Greenville area. And so there's a very much of a history of pirates, uh, you know, Blackbeard and all that years and years ago. And that's, that's why the school has the name of uh, pirates because it, it just, uh, again, melts right into uh, and what we have seen over the years here with the history of, of this part of the state. So, you know, it goes back years and years. They named the, the athletic teams the pirates. And then over the years, they've Develop different traditions with the cannon. Uh, we like to say East Carolina has one of the great entrances in uh, college football. It's uh, Purple Haze, the Jimi Hendrix old Purple Haze song. Uh, that's become a great tradition here. East Carolina wears purple. They come out through purple and white smoke with Purple Haze playing in the background. They have a real live pirate uh, who runs out onto the field with a sword, uh, kind of much like what Florida State does with the spear. He runs out first through the tunnel and through the smoke and he puts the spear in the ground and then coach mcneil comes behind him and all the players it's really pretty cool and uh, when the pirates have a full house and they do almost every time they play you'll have 45 to 50,000 people on their feet and they really get into it with the the video board too and all the things flashing on the video board as the team runs out uh, through the band so it's a pretty cool entrance and, and east carolina i've always thought even before i came here they always look good uh, on the field as, as far as the way they, they dress, the purple and gold colors. Now, we've had some variations of those colors in the last few years with everybody going to different kind of uniforms, but uh, it's still a purple and gold look, and, and it looks good. Kind of an LSU look, 
the uh, the colors are a little bit different. There's a little variation in both the purple and the gold at East Carolina, but it is basically the same color scheme. And uh, you know, it's uh, it's just a place that has carved out a niche and has carved out a really good tradition. You come up this way and you say Pirates football, and everybody knows what you're talking about. And and last year the Pirates uh, hung 70 points on the University of North Carolina. And that is, as we all know, the flagship school would be like if Central Florida or South Florida hung 70 points on the Gators. Well, that's what happened in the state of North Carolina last year as East Carolina beat uh, North Carolina, put 70 points on the board. So uh, the school's got a good name. It's had national recognition. Uh, 1991 was the greatest season. They finished number nine in the country in 1991 and went 11-1 that year. And you'll see East Carolina from time to time pop up in the 25, uh, top 25. So People around the country have recognition of East Carolina and the tradition and what the Pirates are all about. And we know that you play a central role in that tradition. And I know that if ECU gets a big win, there's a, there's a phrase that a lot of ECU fans look for or long for, uh, the paint it purple. We were hoping that you could give us a, a paint it purple as maybe you would give it after an ECU win as, as sort of a sign-off here on the show. Okay. Well, it is my favorite thing to say, and it's uh, my favorite thing for Pirate fans to hear. And we only do it, guys, after wins. We don't do it after losses. I say I get the paint brush out and open up a paint bucket, and uh, it would it would sound something like this: three, two, one. Pirates win. Final score: twenty-eight to twenty-five over the University of Florida Gators. And you can paint this one purple. Thanks so much, Jeff. It was great having you, Jeff Charles, the voice of the ECU Pirates. We look forward to hosting you here in Gainesville this Saturday. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. And with that, we've come to the end of our show. But before we end episode two, we're going to play a little game. All right, I'm going to ask James a few quick little questions. He's going to tell me who he thinks is going to have the most yardage in some of these categories, or who's going to maybe have a couple nice plays on deep. All right, James, give me your rushing leader for this game, week two. Kelvin Taylor. All right, how about most receiving yards? Dark Horse. I'm going to take Goolsby. Oh, tight end. Tight end. You know I love the tight ends. You do love and the I'm tight ends. I'm taking a Dark Horse tight end. I think that ECU, as we learned from Jeff, has some really good linebackers, and I think they're going to focus on Jake McGee, and uh, Goolsby's my guy. All right, how about... Most passing yards. Who you got, Greer or Harris? This is really a toss-up, depending on how the game goes. But, of, of course, I'm taking Will Greer. Okay, of course. All right, anybody get a sack? Oh, absolutely. I think we're going to have probably three or four right. on the game. Yeah, give me one. I'm taking, I'm taking, I'm taking my boy, uh, son of Dolphins fame, Brian Cox, Brian Cox Jr. All right, well, I hope we'll have a couple picks. Anybody you got a prediction on someone getting I'm taking Tabor. I think Tabor's the guy. People are going to stop throwing it at uh, Hargraves, and Tabor's going to get one. This week it's happening. Okay. And I'm like going to go ahead and have you play this game as well because I'm curious to hear what you're thinking. Okay, go for it. All right, let's go with the leading receiver. I'm going to go with Antonio Callaway. He looked really sharp out there, and I think, uh, especially with maybe Demarcus Robinson, we didn't talk about this, but being demoted to third string for various vague reasons like he needs to put it on tape or whatever Michael Wayne says um I think he's gonna be awesome he's really crisp I'm looking for him yeah and certainly Callaway is showing a high attention to detail where DeMarcus isn't I like I like that pick that's a good one how about passer I don't have to go Greer as well I think he's gonna light it up good choice who you got rushing Who's going to be our leading I, rusher? You know what? I th- here's the guy I think is going to clean it up at the end. I think Kelvin's going to play well, but I think Jordan Scarlett's going to get a ton of yardage in the second half. 
All right, that's my guy, Jordan Scott. I know you I'm, love I'm it. I'm almost rooting for him anyway. Uh, how about how about Sacks? Who's going to get a sack launch or two? I think McAllister's going to be amped to play, and he's going to blow by one of those ECU guys and get himself a nice little sack. Is he getting more than one? He might. I'll just stick with one. I'll take the, I'll take the one. Maybe not the over. <laughs> and who is going to get a pick? All right, I I think it's going to be uh, VH three again. I think that teams. You saw it. New Mexico State was thrown at him. I feel like that secondary is so deep, you can't just throw away from him. And they're gonna challenge him one time. He's gonna he's gonna burn him. I love it. That pick that he made on Saturday was was sick. That was high level right there. <laughs> I mean, that's what you want to see out of your cornerback, right? He's not a huge guy. No, he can get he up. Jumps up about fifteen inches over the the second highest jumping guy and just grabs that. He's a thing. beast. That's fantastic. And with that, episode two is in the books. Done. Thanks again for joining us. We've had a blast doing it. We hope you've enjoyed listening. We'll be back next Monday with episode three. Alan, any concluding thoughts? Just thanks to Amy Campbell and our man Jeff Charles for being on. That was really great for them to be here. And looking forward to the game on Saturday. See you guys next week. Great news from Sprint. The wait is finally over. The new Samsung Galaxy Note 10 with the powerful S Pen has arrived at Sprint and you can get it for 50% off with a Sprint Flex lease. That's right. Get the power of performance and productivity of the Galaxy Note 10 for less than $20 per month. There's never been a better time to switch. To learn more, visit your local Sprint store, sprint.com slash Galaxy Note 10 or call 800 Sprint 1 today. 1979 a month after 1980 monthly credit applied within two bills with approved credit 18 month lease and new line of service. If canceled early, remain balance due. Exclusive tax coverage and offer not available everywhere through the activation fee restrictions apply. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.